With an ironclad fist I wake up and French kiss the morning While some marching band Keeps a zombie in my head While we're talking About all of the things that I Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week, we come to the clearing at the end of the path. Over 100 episodes have led to this moment. In real time, in the book's publication, This review symbolizes a 22-year journey that led to the moment of September 21st, 2004, when audiences worldwide saw the conclusion of a series that had at that point comprised of six publications with at least six more tie-in novels that comprised of 5,293 pages. 22 years in which the audience the constant reader dreamed about this moment of driving to the bookstore to pluck from its shelves a book that was not a book, but a doorway that would, one final time, allow us to enter into a magical, fantastic, strange, dangerous, familiar, unrecognizable world filled with robots, monsters, devils, witches, ghosts, spirits, old friends, and an even older warrior, the man who had crossed multiple worlds multiple times, loved greatly, lost more, the complicated, tragic character of Roland, the last gunslinger, as he finally reaches the Dark Tower. As I've stated many times before, the Dark Tower was an incredible journey for me as a reader. I began it as a teen, and I ended it as an adult, And the years and the months built up to the moment where I went to the bookstore and hoisted this massive novel from the shelf. I was caught between a desire to consume and to fast. I couldn't wait to finish it, but I didn't want to finish it. What would I do when I finished it? And would King be able to meet all of the incredibly unrealistic expectations that I've had for years? In the months between the publication of the two previous Dark Tower novels, it sent me for a loop where I overanalyzed everything that had occurred and scoured the internet every time a new Michael Whelan image was released. Whelan, of course, is the illustrator commissioned for this novel, the same one, fittingly, who began it with King so many years before. Three images, I believe, had been released prior to publication. One of Flag looking just like Peter Stormare, a picture of a man being attacked by a spider baby, and one of the Crimson King. 
And I loved that picture of the Crimson King, you guys. I loved it. He looked such like a classic fantasy villain perched atop his throne of bones. And this image was designed to play up that expectation, to subvert it. Because as we'll see in the pages of this book, this is not the Crimson King at all. And the second picture, the spider baby attacking the man. How could I have not guessed that this was Randall Flagg and they were giving away his ultimate fate? Had I been a bit more eagle-eyed, I would have figured out that this was his ending. And I'm glad that at the time I didn't know. It was an incredible time, guys, to be a Stephen King reader and a better time to be a Dark Tower fan. Just to back it up a little bit, this time span saw the publication of, technically speaking, four Dark Tower books. In the spring of 2003, King re-released a, re a revised edition of The Gunslinger so it could totally fit into the rest of the series. That November of 2003, King released The Wolves of the Kala, book five in the series. Now, when King had published a Dark Tower novel previous to this, we never knew when we'd be getting our next one. It's what made the experience so exciting, because when I finished Wolves of the Kala, I knew that I wouldn't have to wait long. On June 8th of 2004, we saw the publication of Song of Susanna. Once I finished reading Song of Susanna, which was far too short uh, an entry for my taste, I had to endure a summer of waiting for September 21st, the moment my Stephen King reading experience had built towards. Anybody who steps into Midworld for the first time from this point forward, actually from the point forward... Uh, of September 21st, 2004, will never experience the sensation of having to wait for a new Dark Tower publication. Sure, Stephen King might publish new entries in, in Midworld, but the journey of Roland and his quartet heading to the Dark Tower, every publication when it comes out in unknown quantity as to what that would entail for our characters and would Roland ever reach the destination? These are questions that were contained and, and just locked and loaded with in the pages of this book no one's ever going to know what that feels like if you didn't experience and i don't want to get on my high horse and start reminiscing about the good old days and how lucky fans have it now but i don't know if i would actually say that fans are lucky because i think that there's something to be said about waiting because it just really builds that relationship that anticipation does it just builds the relationship between the author and the reader you're you're able to really add to the story and the characters and really step inside their shoes in the weeks and months and sometimes years in between publications between each book nowadays um Anyone that, that, that gets in the Dark Tower will just be able to download all the books. Boom, 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 boom. Go to the bookstore, buy all the books. Boom, 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 boom. Finish with one, go to the next. Finish with one, go to the next. It, it loses something in that reading process. I, I think that there is something to be said about parsing out a story rather than just binging, which isn't to say that we shouldn't binge. Oh, what an awful thing to say on it. No, but when it comes to, to media, I think that at times it, it's definitely okay. It's just, it's going to create a different experience. So, I mean, Netflix, I mean, my wife and I, we just, we binge shows all the time. Friday Night Lights, boom. Mad Men, boom. Veronica Mars, boom. Bloodline, out. Just one after the other, after the other. And we just soak it all in. Um, but I just wonder, 
I, I just wonder what we miss by doing that. You know, I mean, in the later seasons of Mad Men, the ones that when we had finally caught up to to uh, on Netflix in the last three seasons or so, I watched um, on air as it came out. It really allowed me to understand just how well Mad Men was crafted because I was actually taking time thinking about each particular episode in the weeks between each episode rather than just hitting a button and going on to the next one. And that thinking process, of course, solidified everything that Matthew Weiner was doing in terms of his stories and his characters during that particular episode. And sorry, guys, I've done this before, and I apologize again, but sorry, not sorry. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about Lost. It's the same thing. I mean, anyone that watches Lost now on Netflix, you're really missing out. You're, you're, you're missing out on what Lost was and what it was designed to be. So there was really something to be said. I mean, for me, the the the, the viewing process of Lost, <clears throat> the the week in between every episode and the research and the online portion of reading Jeff Jansen's thoughts or researching what a philosopher what his name meant in a historical context and trying to apply how that would work onto the show, all of these thoughts were just as important to watching that episode. So the hours spent outside of that episode were just as important to the watching experience as sitting there on the couch for that hour on Wednesday nights watching Lost. And through that thinking and coming up with your ideas and formulating these thoughts, only to have your thoughts subverted later on by the creators, it... It adds to the to the the, the, the viewing experience. Um, it makes it so much more interactive than just soaking it in, soaking it in, soaking it in. And the Dark Tower, in many ways, was this process. It's no wonder that Lost resounded within me the way that it did because, or resonated. I'm sorry, resonated within me the way that it did because Lindelof and Cuse are huge Stephen King fans, and you can see a lot of the Dark Tower influence uh, in Lost. And I just feel as though there's just, we're, we're, we're missing something if we just consume, if we just ravenously eat everything on our plate without taking time to savor each particular bite. And I'm stalling. And I admit that I'm stalling because I have finished The Dark Tower once as a fan. I have read The Dark Tower again and I finished it as... I guess a critic, as an online critic. And now I'm putting my thoughts out there. I am closing the door on the Dark Tower. And it's intimidating, guys, much like it, as it was for me for my It review. It, it's intimidating. And part of me, this is part of me giving up something and, and giving away something and saying goodbye to something that had for so long meant so much to me. And Something that I'm never going to pick up again. I'm never going to read the Dark Tower series after this, I doubt. I highly, highly doubt. Maybe when I'm much, 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 much older. Um, but I just don't see it happening anytime soon. But like I said, this series helped inform who I was. It helped shape my brain. It helped me become an analytical thinker. I owe a lot to Stephen King because of what he did with this particular series and... When this book came out, the excitement that I felt was incredible. And it was incredibly met 
with disappointment when I first read it. So when I sat down for the purposes of making this particular podcast and I said, should I do a Stephen King podcast? The idea of going back into the world of Roland and his quartet and exploring the Dark Tower one more time that was so far removed from that emotional standpoint that I could look at it a bit more objectively, knowing that I was going to be viewing each Stephen King book in the context in the context of his life, weighing each book against the book that had come before it and the books that had become before that. It made me realize that I could go into it as fresh as possible and I might get something out of it that was different than I had gotten out of it the first time around when I was just disappointed and I couldn't let that disappointment sway the fact that he was doing something on purpose and I wouldn't let myself see it. All I saw was disappointment and I never asked why. I never asked why he was making us feel disappointment. Well, I'll get to all of that in this episode, but for right now, I just want to say before we get into the analysis, he did it. He finished it. He gave us a very divisive ending, and he made a lot of ballsy choices that alienated a lot of his fans, um, really sold the, the the shares of Kleenex in 2004 when it came out. But I stand by the majority of the choices that he made, because what he did, he made it memorable, and he reinforced the themes that he had built since the beginning of this journey so, so, so many years before. Okay, guys, so I can get into specifics. I need to get into the Wikipedia summary so I'll have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. Here we go. Beginning where book six left off, Jake Chambers and Father Callahan battle the evil infestation within the Dixie Pig, a vampire lounge in New York City featuring roast human flesh and doors to other worlds. After fighting off and destroying numerous low men and type 1 vampires, Callahan sacrifices himself to let Jake survive. In the other world, Fetic, Mia, her body now physically separated from Susanna Dean, gives birth to Mordred Deshane, the biological son of Roland Deshane and Susanna. The Crimson King is also a co-father of this prophetic child, so it's not surprising when baby Mordred's first act is to shapeshift into a spider creature and feast on his birth mother. Susanna shoots but fails to kill Mordred, eliminates other agents of the Crimson King, and escapes to meet up with Jake at the cross-country dimensional door beneath the Dixie Pig which connects to Fetic. Maturing at an accelerated rate, Mordred later stalks Roland and the other gunslingers throughout this adventure, shifting from human to spider as the need arises, seething with instinctive rage towards Roland and his white daddy. Sorry, Roland, comma, his white daddy. In Maine, Roland and Eddie recruit John Cullum and then make their way back to Fetic, where the quartet is now reunited. Walter, known in other stories as Randall Flagg, plans to slay Mordred and use the birthmark on Mordred's heel to gain access to the tower, but he is easily slain by the infant when Mordred sees through his lies. Roland and his quartet travel to Thunderclap, then to the nearby Devartoi to stop a group of psychics known as Breakers, who are allowing their telepathic abilities to be used to break away the beams that support the tower. Ted Brodigan and Dinky Earnshaw assist the gunslingers with information and weapons and reunite Roland with his old friend Shimi Ruiz from Mehis. The gunslingers free the breakers from their captors, but Eddie is wounded after the battle and dies a short while later. 
Roland and Jake pause to mourn and then jump to Maine of 99 along with Oi in order to save the life of Stephen King, who he writes to be an omniscient secondary character in the book. The Quartet have come to believe that the success of their quest depends on King surviving to write about it through his books. They discover King about to be hit by a van. Jake pushes King out of the way, but Jake is killed in the process. Roland, heartbroken with loss at the person he considers his true son, buries Jake and returns to Oi with Susanna in Fetic via the Dixie Pig. They are chased through the depths of Castle Discordia by an otherworldly monster, then depart and travel for weeks across the freezing badlands toward the tower. Along the way, they find Patrick Danville, a young man imprisoned by someone who calls himself Joe Collins, but is really a psychic vampire named Dandelo. Dandelo feeds off the emotion of his victims, and starts to feed off Roland and Susanna by telling them jokes. Roland and Susanna are alerted to the danger by Stephen King, who drops clues directly into the book, establishing, sorry, enabling them to defeat the vampire. They discover Patrick in the basement, and find that Dandelo had removed his tongue. Patrick is freed, and soon his special talent becomes evident. His drawings and paintings become reality. As their travels bring them nearer to the Dark Tower, Susanna comes to the conclusion that Roland needs to complete his journey without her. Susanna asks Patrick to draw a door, as she had seen in her dreams, to lead her out of this world. He does so, and once it appears, Susanna says goodbye to Roland and crosses over to another world. Mordred finally reaches and attacks Roland. Oi viciously defends his din, providing Roland the extra seconds needed to exterminate the were-spider. Unfortunately, Oi is impaled on a tree branch and dies. Roland continues on his ultimate goal and reaches the tower, only to find it occupied by the Crimson King. They remain in a stalemate for a few hours, until Roland has Patrick draw a picture of the Crimson King and then erase it, thus wiping him out of existence except for his eyes. Roland gains entry into the tower while Patrick turns back home. The last scene is that of Roland crying out the names of his loved ones and fallen comrades as he had vowed to do so. The door of the Dark Tower closes shut as Patrick watches from a distance. The story then shifts to Susanna coming through the magic door to an alternate 1980s New York, where Gary Hart is president. Susanna throws away Roland's gun, which does not function on this side of the door, rejecting the life of a gunslinger, and starts a new life with alternate versions of Eddie and Jake, who in this world are brothers with the surname Torin. They only have very vague memories of their previous journey with Susanna, whose own memories of Midworld are already beginning to fade. It's implied that an alternative version of Oi the Billy Bumber will also join them. In the final coda section, King urges the reader to close the book at this point, consider the story finished with a happy ending and not venture inside the tower with Roland. For those who do not heed the warning, the story resumes with Roland stepping into the dark tower. He realizes that the tower is not really made of stone, but a kind of flesh. It is Gon's physical body. As he climbs the steps, Roland encounters various rooms containing sigils or signs of his past life. When he reaches the top of the tower, he finds a door marked with his own name and opens it. Roland instinctively realizes to his horror that he has reached the tower countless times before. He is forced through the door by the hands of Gon and transported back to his time in Mohane Desert with no memories of what had just occurred. The only difference is that this time, Roland possesses the Horn of Eld, 
which in the previous incarnation he had left lying on the ground after the Battle of Jericho Hill. Roland hears the voice of Gon, whispering that if he reaches the tower again, perhaps this time the result will be different, that there may be yet rest. The series ends where it began with the first line of Book One. The man in black fled across the desert, and the gunslinger followed. Analysis Part One The Little Red King Dan Tet. When you open the book to this chapter, you are immediately hit by a powerful image of little baby Mordred. Content little smile on his face, holding a rat as if it were his favorite blankie with the Crimson King's eyes scrawled upon the wall. Chapter 1. Callahan and the Vampires It's interesting that we don't begin the novel with Roland. Instead, we begin the novel with Callahan. This scene is a revision of the cliffhanger that ended the story in Song of Susanna, but with the focus through the perspective in which, while he's preparing to answer the, the Dixie Pig with Jake, is flooded with the voice of Gon, preparing him and us for his upcoming death. This, along with the mission to protect the boy because he's not supposed to die yet, gives the introductory scene the tension of a finger pressing down on the trigger but not yet firing the bullet. They burst into the Dixie Pig, Jake preparing for his big gunslinging moment, and King reminds us of the odds stacked against them. A dining room full of at least 100 monsters comprised of low men and vampires. Remember guys, decades, decades has led up to this moment of reading the beginning of the end of the final book of the Dark Tower series. There is nothing but uncertainty over what's going to happen, and King knows it. He knows how to build this scene. Callahan pulls the tablecloth off of the table, hoists himself upon it, and King interjects and let us know that they've been in the Dixie Pig for only 34 seconds. With the power of the turtle, Callahan is able to subdue the low men and vampires in the room, and King sneaks in a little mythology around Oi, who Jake realizes, as a Billy Bumbler, was bred by nature to prey upon the monstrous vampiric bugs that come crawling out of the tables like a mongoose to a cobra. The power of the White and Roland floods through Callahan, who demands Jake take off after Susanna. And he says this, it's the understanding that he's going to sacrifice himself so that Jake will have a chance. After all these decades, Callahan comes face to face with the type of vampire that had set him on his long and strange road that eventually led to the Kala. The type 1 vampire tumble out from behind the tapestry, and he realizes that he's been given a second chance to rewrite the wrong he had committed in a little town called Salem's Lot so many years ago. As for the vampires themselves, they don't look like Barlow had looked. Remember that he was a well-dressed, distinguished man, and these are straight-up monsters. Perhaps Barlow really looked like these things, but used glamour because he was vain. I like that King makes the decision to present them as monstrous. It's kind of like he's acknowledging the portrayal of Barlow from the Salem's Lot TV miniseries that went down as an iconic horror monster. And it's during this scene 
when he's able to do to them what he wasn't able to do to Barlow. And that's stand true. Then the ancient ones who had been at their own sup tore aside the obscene tapestry and burst out, shrieking through the great fangs that propped their deformed mouths forever open. Their eyes were as black as blindness, the skin of their cheeks and brows, even the back of their hands, tumorous with wild teeth. Like the vampires in the dining room, they were surrounded with auras, but these were of a poisoned violet so dark it was almost black. Some sort of ichor dribbled from the corners of their eyes and mouths. They were gibbering, and several were laughing, seeming not to create the sounds, but rather to snatch them out of the air like something that could be rent alive. And Callahan knew them, of course he knew them. Had he not been sent hence by one of their number? Here were the true vampires, the type ones, kept like a secret and now loosed on the intruders. The turtle he held up did not slow them in the slightest. Callahan saw Jake staring, pale, eyes shining with horror and bulging from their sockets, all purpose forgotten at the sight of these freaks. Without knowing what was going to come out of his mouth until he heard it, Callahan shouted, They'll kill Oi first! They'll kill him in front of you and drink his blood! Oi barked at the sound of his name. Eyes, Jake's eyes seemed to clear at the sound, but Callahan had no time to follow the boy's fortune further. The turtle won't stop them but at least it's holding the others back. Bullets won't stop them, but... With a sense of deja vu and why not, he had lived all this before in the home of a boy named Mark Petrie. Callahan dipped into the open front of his shirt and brought out the cross he wore there. It clicked, it clicked against the butt of the Ruger and then hung below it. The cross was lit with a brilliant bluish-white glare. The two ancient things in the lead had been about in the lead had been about to grab him and draw him into their midst. Now they drew back instead, shrieking with pain. Callahan saw the surface of their sin skizzle and begin to liquefy. The sight of it filled him with savage happiness. Get back from me, he shouted. The power of God commands you. The power of Christ commands you. The Ka of Midworld commands you. The power of the white commands you. One of them darted forward nevertheless, a deformed skeleton in an ancient, moss-encrusted dinner suit. Around its neck it wore some sort of ancient award, the Cross of Malta perhaps? It swiped one of its long-nailed long hands at the crucifix Callahan was holding out. He jerked it down at the last second and the vampire's claw passed an inch above it. Callahan lunged forward without thought and drove the tip of the cross into the yellow parchment of the thing's forehead. The gold crucifix went in like red-hot skewer into butter. The thing in the rusty dinner suit let out a liquid cry of pained dismay and stumbled backward. Callahan pulled his cross back. For one moment, before the elderly monster clapped its claws to its brow, Callahan saw the hole his cross had made. Then a thick, curdy yellow stuff began to spill through the Ancient One's fingers. Its knees unhinged, and it tumbled to the floor between two tables. Its mates shrank away from it, screaming with outrage. The thing's face was already collapsing inward beneath its twisted hands. The aura whiffed out like a candle, and then there was nothing but a puddle of yellow, liquefying flesh, spilling like vomit from the sleeves of its jacket and the legs of its pants. 
Callahan strode briskly towards the others. His fear was gone. The shadow of shame that had broken that hung over him ever since Barlow had taken his cross and broken it was also gone. Free at last, he thought. Free at last. Great God Almighty, I'm free at last. Then, I believe this is redemption. And it's good, isn't it? Quite good indeed. Throw it aside, one of them cried, its hands held up to shield its face. Nasty bauble of the Eep God, throw it aside if you dare. Nasty bauble of the Sheep God indeed. If so, why do you cringe? Against Barlow, he had not dared answer this challenge, and it had been his undoing. In the Dixie Pig, Callahan turned the cross toward the thing which had dared to speak. I needn't stake my faith on the challenge of a thing such as you, Sai, he said, his words ringing clearly in the room. He had forced the old ones back almost to the archway through which they had come. Great dark tumors had appeared on the hands and faces of those in front, eating into the paper of their ancient skin like acid. And I'd never throw away such an old friend in any case. But put it away? Aye, if you like and he dropped it back into his shirt. Several of the vampires lunged forward immediately, their fang-choked mouths twisting in what might have been grins. Callahan held his Ruger out toward them. The fingers and the barrel of the Ruger glowed as if they had been dipped into blue fire. The eyes of the turtle had likewise filled with light, its shell shone. Stand away from me, Callahan cried. The power of God and white commands you. Though they will soon overpower him, this moment of redemption for Callahan is one of the most triumphant scenes I've ever read. And it's important that King includes this moment of redemption in the beginning of the novel, because at the end, Roland is denied redemption. Yet, because Ka is a wheel, and because the very end doubles back to the very beginning, here, the beginning of the end suggests redemption for everyone. Unfortunately, the Skolpata, the turtle, is knocked from Callahan, and King gives a wonderful shout-out to it, specifically George Denbro's paper boat. As the grandfathers come pouring out to claim him, Callahan decides to end his life. His finger tightened on the trigger as the ancient, sorry, the, tightened on the trigger as the ancient monsters fell upon him. He was buried in the reek of their cold and bloodless breath, but not daunted by it. He had never felt so strong. Of all the years in his life, he had been happiest when he had been a simple vagrant, not a priest, but only Callahan o' the roads, and felt that soon he would be let free to resume that life and wander as he would, his duties fulfilled, and that was well. May you find your tower, Roland, and breach it, and may you climb to the top. The teeth of his old enemies, these ancient brothers and sisters of a thing which had called itself Kurt Barlow, sank into him like stingers. Callahan felt them not at all. He was smiling as he pulled the trigger and escaped them for good. Chapter 2. Lifted on the Wave With Callahan's long story now finally over, we checked back in with Eddie and Roland when we had left off. And when we had left off, they had literally just met their maker, Stephen King, in a house in Maine. 
As they drive to find the epicenter of the walk-ins in order to find their way home, there's a fun scene of Ka washing over them, the force of the white starting to take much bolder steps in the game and sending their spirits first to check in on Susanna, then on Callahan and the Dixie Pig, which explains how Roland's voice had been coming out of Callahan's mouth when we last saw him. And it's just a cool image of their physical bodies back in the truck, floating suspended while their spirits fly untethered. And when they crash back to reality, they mourn the death of their recent friend who had made a significant impact on them. The most urgent need, of course, is to get to Susanna, which is why it's surprising that Eddie speaks up and tells Roland they can't do that just yet. There's tension here because, as King says, the time for mistakes was over. This was the end game goosebumps. Eddie realized that they have to form the Tet Corporation before they exit 1977, but of course, that's easier said than done. I mean, my wife is in bad trouble somewhere up the line. For all I know, she's being eaten alive by vampires or vampire bugs, and here I sit beside a country road with a guy whose most basic skill is shooting people trying to work out how I'm going to start a effing corporation. They try to figure out how they're going to get Moses Carver to build this empire without assistance of Susanna. And Roland realizes that the only one who will be able to help is John Collum, the friendly stranger who swept in to save them during the Andalini shootout at Took's General Store. King realizes the absurdity that I had spoken of in my review of Song of Susanna when Eddie points out that he's just a minor character. <clears throat> We can phone him from Bridgeton, but in a story, Roland, a minor character like John Collum would never come in off the bench to save the day. It wouldn't be considered realistic. In life, Roland said, I'm sure it happens all the time. Though things are looking bleak, though Callahan has died, though King could decide to make every word in the 800-page novel be as serious as a heart attack, he leaves room for humor like when Eddie coaches Roland how to walk into the store and order a sandwich. After being unable to pronounce hoagie or salami sandwich, Eddie settles on tasking Roland with ordering a poor boy. And again, guys, it's another reason why I think that Mads Mikkelsen would be great for the role. They make a plan to meet with John Cullum, and on their way, they pass a walk-in, a wandering slow mutant who is able to inform Roland of Fedek and Castle Discordia, and after Roland puts the thing out of its misery, the act reminds us that when it comes time to the tower, Roland has proven himself to choose the tower over his friends time and time again. Chapter 4. Dan Dete. Song of Susanna ended with three cliffhangers. Callahan and Jake entering the Dixie Pig, Stephen King's 1999 death, and Susanna about to give birth to Mordred. We've checked in on Eddie and Roland after they've left Stephen King, and we've watched the end of Callahan. This means it's time for King to turn back to Susanna. Though I might have had issues with the pacing of the Song of Susanna, her journey through the Dixie Pig into Fedek was masterfully done, and I love everything during the birthing scene. As the telepathic link between Mia and Susanna starts to fade, she begins to prepare for her moment of opportunity while also mourning the psychic link between her and Mia, who she had come to accept as a sister. 
It doesn't take long for King to introduce the world to Mordred, who enters into the Endworld Hospital to a round of applause from the low men and vampires and Susanna herself, which is so dreamy and strange. As Mordred begins to nurse, King winks at the audience and writes, Mia's chap changed. Uh-oh. King writes, Susanna saw red light run down the child's smooth skin, from the crown of its head to the stained heel of its right foot. It was not a flush, but a flash, lighting the child from without. Susanna could have sworn it. And then, as it lay upon Mia's deflated stomach with its lips clamped around her nipple, the red flash was followed by a blackness that rose up and spread, turning the child into a lightless gnome, a negative of the rosy baby that had escaped Mia's womb. At the same time, its body began to shrivel, its legs pulling up and melting into its belly, its head sliding down and pulling Mia's breast with it into its neck, which puffed up like the throat of a toad. Its blue eyes turned into tar, then back to blue again. Susanna tried to scream and could not. Tumors swelled along the black thing's side, then burst and extruded legs. The red mark which had ridden the heel was still visible, but had now become a blob like the crimson brand on a black widow's spider's belly. For that was which this thing was, a spider. Yet the baby was not entirely gone. A white excrescence rose from the spider's back. In it, Susanna could see a tiny deformed face and blue sparks that were eyes. What? Mia asked and started up on her elbows once again. Blood had begun to pour from her breast. The baby drank it like milk, losing not a drop. Beside Mia, Sarah was standing as still as a graven image, his mouth open and eyes bulging from their sockets. Whatever he'd expected from this birth, whatever he'd been told to expect, it wasn't this. The Detta part of Susanna took a child's vicious pleasure in the man's shocked expression. He looked like the comedian Jack Benny milking a laugh. For a moment, only Mia seemed to realize what had happened, for her face began to lengthen with a kind of informed horror and perhaps pain. Then her smile returned, that angelic Madonna's smile. She reached out and stroked the still-changing freak at her breast, the black spider with the tiny human head and the red mark on its bristly gut. Is he not beautiful, she cried. Is my son not beautiful, as fair as the summer sun? These were her last words. Susanna takes out the room of vampires, robots, tahin, and lomen and only manages to shoot off one of Mordred's legs, which allows him to escape. Susanna, with the help of the now blind by her gunfire Nigel the Butler robot, manages to escape the room where generations of children from the Calabrin Sturges has been turned root. Nigel takes Susanna to a number of doorways to many wares and wens that Susanna believes has been used as tourist attractions, which is an interesting wrinkle for the story. We've seen doorways throughout the series, all of them used for cosmic life and death importance, which makes the frivolous nature of the old ones look spoiled. Chapter 5, In the Jungle, the Mighty Jungle. We check in with Jake as he is forced to leave Callahan behind, and after demonstrating his competence by holding off the oncoming low men, he flees, allowing Oi who has gotten a whiff of Susanna's trail. 
Now, throughout the six novels that had preceded the final installment, King had given us growing worlds, putty-like time, wizards, magic, science, cowboys, knights, magic doorways, robot messengers, robot bears, robot trains, demons, oracles, time travel, haunted houses, but he isn't done with fantastical ideas. As he demonstrates with Jake, who while running down a path is all of a sudden taken into prehistoric times as part of a mind trap within the corridor. But still, King gets even crazier. The psychic bond of love between Oi and Jake is so strong, they're able to swap minds, allowing Oi, now in Jake's body, to lead them through because the mind trap won't be able to project from, uh, from Oi's mind. It's a fun little scene, with the king's men stuck having to pass through the mind trap themselves, Jake's dinosaur turning into a dragon, and it concludes with Jake and Oi managing to pass through the doorway into Fedic, reuniting with Susanna, and King teases the oncoming breaking of the Ka-Tet, stating that Roland's Ka-Tet continues to remain unbroken for now. The for now is an incredibly ominous appendage. Chapter 6, on Turtleback Lane. Eddie and Roland meet with John Collum, and King's work on the setting and the tone in this chapter is unbelievable. The world seems to take a breath as the thunderclouds build up over the sky, and the two convince Collum to become the co-president of the Tet Corporation. And though he'll soon pass from this narrative, King gives us the beats of the life he'll live afterward. John thought it over. He touched the cross he wore now and would wear until his death in the year of 1989, the cross given to Roland by an old woman in a forgotten town. He would touch it just that way in the years ahead when contemplating some big decision. The biggest might have been the one to sever Tet's connection with IBM, a company that had shown an uh, ever-increasing willingness to do business with North Central Positronics, or preparing for some covert action, the firebombing of the somber enterprises in New Delhi, for instance, in the year before he died. The cross spoke to Moses Carver and never spoke again in Calm's presence no matter how much he blew on it, but sometimes, drifting to sleep, with his hand clasped around it, he would think, "'Tis a sigil, tis a sigil." "'Tis a sigil, dear, something that came from another world." If he had regrets towards the end, other than about some of the tricks which were filthy indeed and cost more than one man in his life, it was that he never got a chance to visit the world on the other side, which he glimpsed one stormy evening on Turtleback Lane in the town of Lovell. From time to time, Roland's sigil sent him dreams of a field filled with roses and a sooty black tower. Sometimes he was visited by terrible visions of two crimson eyes floating unattached to any body and relentlessly scanning the horizon, which is a great shout-out to the very, very ending of the novel. Sometimes there were dreams in which he heard the sound of a man relentlessly winding his horn. Which points to... Wow. Which points to redemption. From these latter dreams he would awake with tears on his cheeks, those of longing and loss and love. He would awake with his hand closed around the cross, thinking, I denied discordia and regret nothing. I have spat into the bloodyless, the, body, the bodiless eyes of the Crimson King and rejoice. I threw my lot with the gunslinger's quartet and the white and never once questioned the choice. 
So like I said, what's notable here is that in the dreams, he's dreaming of events after the conclusion of this novel. He's dreaming of Roland starting over again. And the leftover remains of the Crimson King following his confrontation with Roland and Patrick. John Collum drives them to Kara Laughs, the lake house whose surrounding woods is teeming with light from which is spewing hundreds of glowing walk-ins. The thunder booms, the lightning flashes, and now the glow from the prim burns brightly in the forest. It's a great visual, and it's convenient, yes, that it's right there when Eddie and Roland need it to be. Just like it's convenient that the cross they give to John Cullum speaks with Susanna's voice so they can convince Moses Carver. But it also feels like Ka is rushing them towards their end, as if Gon knows that the end is rushing at them and has to get its players ready for it. Chapter 7, Reunion. Eddie and Roland materialize in front of the door, blowing away the king's men, and he provides a wonderful reunion between Eddie and Susanna. Wonderfully, but tra tragically bittersweet because of Eddie's impeding and unexpected death. Eddie reloaded the gun, his now, so he had been told, and dropped it back into its holster. Then he went to the dead and yanked four of them absently aside so he could get to the door. Susanna, Suze, are you there? Do any of us, except in our dreams, truly expect to be reunited with our heart's deepest loves, even when they leave us only for minutes? And on the most mundane of errands? No, not at all. Each time they go from our sight, we and our secret hearts count them as dead. Having been given so much, we reason, how could we expect not to be brought as low as Lucifer for the staggering presumption of our love? So Eddie didn't expect her to answer until she did, from another world and through a single thickness of wood. Eddie? Sugar, is that you? Eddie's head, which had seemed perfectly normal only seconds before, was suddenly too heavy to hold up. He leaned it against the door. His eyes were similarly too heavy to hold open, and so he closed them. The weight must have been tears, for suddenly he was swimming in them. He could feel them rolling down his cheeks warm as blood, and Roland's hand touching his back. Susanna, Eddie said. His eyes were still closed. His fingers were splayed on the door. Can you open it? Jake answered, no, but you can. What word, Roland asked. He had been alternating glances at the door with looks behind him, almost hoping for reinforcements, for his blood was up. But the tiled corridor was empty. What word, Jake? There was a pause, brief, but it seemed very long to Eddie, and then both spoke together. Chasset, they said. Eddie didn't trust himself to say it. His throat was too full of tears. Roland had no such problem. He hauled several more bodies away from the door, including Flatterdies, his face still fixed in its final snarl, and then spoke the word. Once again, the door between the worlds clicked open. It was Eddie who opened it wide, and then the four of them were face to face again, Susanna and Jake in one world, Roland and Eddie in another, and between them a shimmering transparent membrane like living mica. Susanna held out her hands, and they plunged through the membrane like hands emerging from a body of water that had somehow magically turned on its side. Eddie took them. He let her fingers close over his and draw him into Fetic. And just because Eddie and Susanna share a moment, it doesn't mean that Roland and Jake aren't going to share theirs. 
So right afterwards, King writes, By the time Roland stepped through, Eddie had already lifted Susanna and was holding her in his arms. The boy looked up at the gunslinger. Neither of them smiled. Oi sat at Jake's feet and smiled for both of them. Heil, Jake, Roland said. Heil, father. Will you call me so? Jake nodded. Yes, if I may. Such would please me ever, Roland said. Then slowly, as one performs an action with which he's unfamiliar, he held out his arms. Looking up at him solemnly, never taking his eyes from Roland's face, the boy moved between those killer's hands and waited until they locked at his back. He had dreams of this that he would never have dared to tell. Susanna, meanwhile, was covering Eddie's face with kisses. They almost got Jake, she was saying. I sat down on my side of the door, and I was so tired I nodded off. He must have called me three, four times before I... Later, he would hear her tale, every word, and to the end. Later, there would be time for palaver. For now, he cupped her breast, the left one, so he could feel the strong, steady beat of her heart, and then stopped her speech with his mouth. Jake, meanwhile, said nothing. He stood with his head turned so his cheek rested against Roland's midsection. His eyes were closed. He could smell rain and dust and blood on the gunslinger's shirt. He thought of his parents who were lost, his friend Benny who was dead, the peer who had been overrun by all of those from whom he had long so fled. The man he held had betrayed him once for the tower, had let him fall, and Jake couldn't say the same might not happen again. Certainly, they were miles ahead, and they would be hard ones. Still, for now, he was content. His mind was quiet, and his sore heart was at peace. It was enough to hold and be held. Enough to stand here with his eyes shut and to think, My father has come for me. Woo, guys. Woo. Like I said, this is so bittersweet, and it's hard for me to get through this without bursting into tears. I mean, just because Eddie and Jake die, it doesn't mean that they're robbed. Moments like this give their lives fulfillment. And while Eddie's might be a surprise, Jake is prepared for his. Maybe because he had been given this moment and made it okay to let go later. Chapter 2, Blue Heaven, Chapter 1. The Devartet. What makes this novel work as well as it does isn't what King provides, but what he excludes. When they're in the Devartet, the little prison of Fetic, we're given the glimpse of empty cots and futuristic helmets that had drained the children of the college dry. We don't need to see it. The artifacts are enough to paint the scene and provide the rich and strange backstory. Similarly, the reunion is tinged with melancholia as the brief discussion on the motivation and death of Mia is all that she gets of a eulogy. They map out what they know of Endworld, and Roland, sensing that the Crimson King is imprisoned, realize that their first priority should now head over to Divartoy and stop the Breakers. Chapter 2, The Watcher. We cut to Mordred, watching the Cotet. The quick scene is necessary in introducing us to the character who has adult consciousness trapped in a baby's body. The creature is disturbing character, both in physical nature and emotional, 
And as he dined on a Billy Bumbler, Oi and Jake both have uneasy dreams. And this is a great character dedicated chapter to a strange and loathsome creature. And King focuses on the very personal with the mythological. Look, if you would. Here sits a baby with blood streaking his fair skin. Here sits a baby weeping his silent, eerie tears. Here sits a baby that knows both too much and too little. And although we must keep our fingers away from his mouth, he snaps this one, snaps like a baby crocodile. We are allowed to pity him a little. If Ka is a train, and it is a vast hurtling mono, maybe sane, maybe not, then this nasty little lycanthrope is its most vulnerable hostage. Not tied to the tracks like little Nell, but strapped to the thing's very headlight. He may tell himself he has two fathers, and there may be some truth to it, but there is no father here, and no mother, either. He ate his mother alive, say true, ate her big big. She was his first meal, and what choice did he have about it? He is the last miracle ever to be spawned by the still-standing dark tower, the scarred wedding of the rational and the irrational, the natural and the supernatural. And yet he is alone, and he is a hungry. Destiny might have intended him to rule a chain of universes or destroy them all, but so far he has succeeded in establishing dominion over nothing but one old domestic robot who has gone now to the clearing at the end of the path. He looks at the sleeping gunslinger with love and hate, loathing and longing. But suppose he went to them and was not killed. What if they were to welcome him in? Ridiculous idea, yes but allow it for the sake of argument. Even then, he would be expected to set Roland above him, accept Roland as Din. And that, he will never do, never do, no, never do. Chapter 3. The Shining Wire. The previous chapter was essential. King had to give us an insight into Mordred, because his beginning is interwoven with the ending of a long-established Stephen King fan favorite, Randall Flagg. Here we go, guys. When Mordred is awoken by a hooded figure, I immediately perked up. I thought that this is where the novel would begin to settle on the groove I'd been expecting for years. Flagg was here at last, Time to take center stage as a major threat to our Katet. Step out of the shadows and back into the spotlight that he had oh so performed in the pages of The Stand. Imagine my disappointment when he's quickly murdered and eaten by Mordred. I couldn't believe it. After all these years, after all these centuries, he's gone. Just like that. His return provides some information to us, an ultimate goal, which is to climb the tower himself, to climb to the top and to see what's there. It's an uneasy scene the entire time. It's incredibly done. Maybe one of the best scenes that Stephen King has ever written. Knowing that Mordred is reading every thought, both villains ready to pounce on each other. And King butters up the walking dude with passages like the following. He laughed through a mouthful of crackers and sprayed crumbs on his chin and shirt. Mordred smiled, but he was revolted. This is what he was supposed to work with? This? 
A cracker-gobbling, crumb-spewing fool who is too full of his own past exploits to sense his present danger or to know his defenses had been breached? By all the gods, he deserved to die. But before that could happen, there were two more things he needed. One was to know where Roland and his friends had gone. The other was to be fed. This fool would serve both purposes. And what made it easy? Why, that Walter had also grown old. Old and lethally sure of himself and too vain to realize it. And King is clearly having a blast, fattening up his boogeyman for the upcoming feast. As Mordred thinks, there was something oddly compelling about watching this fool stitching the last few inches of his fate with such earnestness. And it's great. I mean, because this is what... This is what he says. You may wonder why I'm here and not about your father's business, Walter said. Do you? Mordred didn't, but he nodded just the same. His stomach rumbled. In truth, I am about his business, Walter said, and gave his most charming smile, spoiled somewhat by the peanut butter on his teeth. He had once probably known that any statement beginning with the words, in truth, is almost always a lie. No more. Too old to know, too vain to know, too stupid to remember. But he was wary all the same. He could feel the child's force. In his head? Rummaging around in his head? Surely not. The thing trapped in the baby's body was powerful, but surely not that powerful. Walter leaned forward earnestly, clasping his knees. And he goes on. It's great. And I'm going to be reading a lot of this. I'm going to get back to... Um, Walter, Roll, uh, Randall, Flag. Uh, Martin later on um but this this whole scene I could read the entire thing I want to read the whole thing it's just so good because the cat and mouse game or wizard and spider continues with flag realizing that Mordred has been listening to his thoughts the entire time and before he can do anything he's frozen in place by the invisible silver thread spun out from the baby a mental web of sorts trapping his prey king continues to make a squirm Unsure what will happen next, with Flag still demonstrating his wily nature, smart enough to survey his situation, thinking that Mordred's control will waver when he transforms, allowing for a moment of escape. And just when he thinks he can escape, Mordred doubles down, and Flag meets his gruesome end. After 26 years of haunting our imaginations, Randall Flag is put to rest. Like I said, I'll talk more about Flag later on, as the character deserves a much proper send-off. Lord knows I've talked about enough about him to warrant one, that's for sure. And Randall Flag, I will get back to later. Chapter 4. The Door into the Thunderclap The Cotet uses one of the science-made doors to travel to the Thunderclap, specifically to the Divar Toy, where they're met by an older man who comes running over for help. While at first we might not know who he is, King lets us know a second after when the character looks at Jake and thinks he's seeing Bobby Garfield, the boy from Low Men in Yellow Coats. This is King's roundabout way of letting the reader know that we've just been reintroduced to Ted Broadigan. Chapter 5. Seek Tet. Ted is joined by two other breakers and escape with the Ka-Tet before the Tahin can arrive. As they race through a twisted train station, the second of the three breakers is confirmed to be Dinky Earnshaw from Everything's Eventual. It's a purposefully confusing scene. At first, we don't know why the breakers are there. 
or even know that they're breakers at first, unless you know Ted from Low Men in Yellow Coats. Using the combined power of the three breakers, the third of whom has only been identified as Stanley, we are able to temporarily escape. Stanley, meanwhile, stares at Roland with awe. Here, we get the best look at the thunderclap yet, with the black, heavy sky and the broken landscape. What they saw was a single, fat and gorgeous bolt of sunlight slanting down from a hole in the sagging clouds. It cut through the strangely dark air like a searchlight beam and lit a compound that might have been six miles from the thunderclap station. And about six miles was really all you could say because there was no more north or south in this world, at least not any more than you could count on. Now, there was only the path of the beam. Dinky, there's a pair of binoculars in the lower cave, right? No, I brought them up last time we were here, Ted said, with replied, carefully maintained patience. They're sitting in that pile of crates just inside. Go get them, please. Eddie barely noticed this byplay. He was too charmed and amused by that single broad ray of sun shining down on a green and cheerful plot of land, as unlikely in this dark and sterile desert as... As well, he supposed, as unlikely as Central Park must seem to tourists from the Midwest making their first trip to New York. He could see buildings that looked like college dormitories, nice ones, and others that looked like comfy old manor houses with wide stretches of green lawn before them. At the far side of the Sunbeams area was what looked like the street lined with shops. The perfect little Main Street America, except one thing. In all directions, it ended in dark and rocky desert. He saw four stone towers their sides agreeably green with ivy. No, make that six. The other two were mostly concealed in stands of graceful old elms. Elms in the desert. They discuss Blue Haven, Aljul Ciento, Devil Toy, which is completely different setting than what had been hinted at in Low Men in Yellow Coats and Black House. In Black House especially, we saw the big combination, a giant monstrous machine that was operated by hundreds of children used as slaves. And it was suggested that the breakers were stored, housed, enslaved beneath the tower in the basements. And yet, when we finally get the image of the thunderclap where the breakers are held, it's heaven. It's unexpected and so weird. Also unexpected is the reveal of Stanley. After some teasing from Roland, he finally comes right out with it. In an incredibly tender scene, Roland reveals that Stanley is Shimi from Wizard and Glass, and the two have a very quiet and beautiful, tearful reunion. Chapter 6, The Master of Blue Haven. Okay, guys, we have to talk about this. Though it doesn't happen for a little bit, but not that too far away, we have to talk about Eddie's death. At this point in the novel, King shifts perspectives to Pimley Prentice, the Aljul Ciento master, who will be the one to take the life of Eddie Dean. I'm going to talk more about Eddie's death later in the episode, but for now, knowing that he's going to die soon requires us to pay that much more attention to Pimley Prentice, a middle manager in the workforce of the Crimson King, who we are first introduced to while in the bathroom popping a pimple. This, this is the one who kills Eddie Dean. If his death feels undignified, it's by design. 
because it comes at the hands of someone we first met in an undignified location, in the bathroom, in an undignified act, popping a pimple. Through Pimley, we meet Finley, the voice on the other end of the Dogen radio in Wolves of the Kala. The scene between these two is disgusting. Um, involving the words eating and pimple and pus. It shows how low our low men really are. They're not dangerous. They're not monstrous. They're not romantically evil. They're just low. In Insomnia, our first introduction to the Crimson King, we saw a razor tooth blade wielding cosmic monster as his aid. In low men in yellow coats, the low men drove monsters that pretended to be cars. In Black House, he employed a cyclopean monster to kidnap children for slave labor. With Aljul Ciento, we see the truth. The breakers aren't held in place by werewolves or vampires or demons. The breakers live in a little bit of heaven run not by monsters, but blue-collar workers who don't engage in the work because of a higher calling, but because it's simply a job. His lack of villainy or dramatic intention is off-putting and very unexpected. Not only is Pimley Prentice not evil, he's religious! And not even in a blind devotion, cult-worshipping type of way. He prays for the Lord's guidance, all the while overseeing the death of countless children, the enslavement and imprisonment of psychics from other worlds. King knows he has an interesting character in Pimley, and decides to spend a little time with him. So starting on page 228, um, he writes, And while he's on his knees before the closed toilet seat, this man who will shortly be asking his god to forgive him for working to end creation, and with absolutely no sense of irony, we might as well look at him a bit more closely. We won't take long, for Pimley Prentice isn't central to our tale of Roland and his quartet. Still, he's a fascinating man full of folds and contradictions and dead ends. He's an alcoholic who believes deeply in a personal god, a man of compassion who is now on the very verge of toppling the tower and sending the trillions of worlds that spin on its axis flying into the darkness in a trillion different directions. He would quickly put Dinky Earnshaw and Stanley Ruiz to death if he knew what they'd been up to, and he spends most of every Mother's Day in tears, for he loved his own ma dearly and misses her bitterly. When it comes to the apocalypse, he's the perfect guy for the job, one who knows how to get knee-bound and can speak to the Lord of God like hosts and speak to the Lord God of hosts like an old friend. And he continues, and it's just it's just great. I mean, this segment is just so, so unexpected. As Finley and Pimley stroll through the Algel Ciento, you can't help but understand them. And when Finley tries to make conversation with Dinky about a connection over a shared reading, he's rejected. And you can't help but feel a little bad for him, which is crazy. Even at the end, King continues to build his weird mythology, introducing the vagrant children of Roderick, and illustrating the difference between the, Ra the Tahin and the Kantoi who worshipped human existence and believe they can transform into a human. There's still humor to be had, whether it's Finley thinking the Cantoy or weird, to the Cantoy turning pictures upside down because they think it's hilarious. Not only is this a weird little detail, but it's also a callback to one of Roland's earliest descriptions, 
that he was the type of man who would straighten a crooked picture in a hotel room. Fitting that Roland is characterized by a sense of order and the Cantoy a sense of chaos, both character traits built around a shared image of, um, of a hanging picture. When the Cantoy, the Tahin, are viewed through the eyes of other characters, they're monsters. This choice to demystify their villainy is brilliant and hilarious. They aren't just stock characters, faceless stormtroopers doing the bidding of and serving as blaster fodder for the Emperor. There's life in the Divar toy. The world has texture. A perpetually hungover chief of security, a religious head of operations, a workforce that messes with the furniture for kicks. These aren't necessary details, but they work wonders. Chapter 7. Kashum. The ending begins very soon, and King teases it with Jake's premonition of something bad about to happen, a sensation he first felt in the moments right before Roland had let him fall. And now he recognized the feeling that had crept among them for what it almost certainly was, not weariness or weariness, but kashum. There was no real translation for that rue-laden term, but it meant two cents and approaching break in one's katet. Walter, oh damn him, his old nemesis was dead. Roland had known it as soon as he saw the face of the Lady of Shadows. Soon, one of his own would die as well, probably in the coming battle to break the power of the Divar toy. And once again, the scales which had temporarily tilted in their favor would balance. It never once crossed Roland's mind that the one to die might be him. And he doesn't have to worry, because death is not coming for him. Roland, sensing death officiates the last supper of the quartet, focusing on each member of his family, telling each of them he loves them, ceremoniously, even oi. As the quartet celebrate their final moments together, it's fitting that they are spied upon by Mordred, always on the outside. Chapter 8. Notes from the Gingerbread House Here we get Ted's tale. Like Pimley, Mordred, Mia, and Callahan before him, like I mentioned in previous episodes, the Canterbury Tales was an influence, and it shows here. This scene is rather lengthy, and nice for fans of low men in yellow coats, but for anyone wanting a straight-up focus on the Gunslingers, it might be a little too long. The reveals of the life of Algil Ciento aren't anything we haven't already gotten from Pimley Prentice. It'd be one thing if he had one perspective of his job and Ten had a completely different perspective, but their perspective is very similar, which is good in the sense that, like everything else in the world, the lines between good and evil are completely blurred, but it just goes on for too long. One beat I enjoyed was the description of breaking the beams. We've been told of the breakers for a while now, but we get a visual of corroded beams that they sometimes burrow into, sometimes bend, sometimes scrape. There's no science to it. They just continually chip away at them. Ted's story concludes with the information that Ka will soon sweep Stephen King out of the story because he has given up writing the Dark Tower series. Chapter 9, Tracks on the Path. Roland and Jake have a final moment together, and... Jake continues to become a man, though his progression won't last that much longer when he smokes a cigarette with Roland. It's a nice scene between father and son, focusing on pushing the narrative forward, touching upon Roland's disdain of Stephen King, 
of Jake's jealousy and revulsion of Mordred, who they realize had lurked outside the cave that night. Chapter 10, The Last Palaver, Shimi's Dream. Shimi and the Breakers arrive in the cave, and it's up to Jake to ask him the question of whether or not they should continue on their current path. At this point, King is teasing both the death of Jake and the future of Roland. With Roland, Shimi tells him, you have to save the tower and my old friend is to go in and mount to the top and see what's to see. There may be renewal, there may be death, or there may be both. He was Will Dearborn once, I, so he was Will Dearborn to me. Unpacking this, we ultimately discover that yes, there's death, the death of everyone around Roland, and yes, there's renewal as Roland heads back into his own past, albeit one with slight changes to represent growth in his character development. After Shimi shares his dream, the Kotet realize they've all dreamed an interpretation of the same one, of the beam, appearing to them in the form of a boy, and King takes a jab at himself when Jake says, I wonder if Stephen King ever uses dreams in his writing. Chapter 11, The Attack on Uljul Siento. King switches perspectives throughout Aljul Siento in order to provide us a sense of chaos that springs from Roland's plan. We've seen the massacre of Tull under Roland's guns. We've seen the fruition of his plans at Mehis and the Kala. But now we experience Roland's gift of death dealing through the perspective of his victims, and it makes him even more menacing. He's like a mix between the Terminator and Batman. And King continues to insert himself, not necessarily as a character, but merely a voice. King as narrator is providing a heightened reading experience. What I would say the, the, the literary equivalent of what Tarantino does with his films. You know how you, you watch a Tarantino movie and his love of cinema is so infectious, he makes you feel and think his thoughts and feelings? How when he crafts a scene, he's in such control that he's able to build it entirely within whatever tone he wants, yet at the same time winking at the audience without betraying the tone or have that wink overshadow the scene itself? King's doing that throughout his final novel to great effect, teasing characters' death, adding opinions to the events, and amplifying sensations within the reader. He's in the Dogen of our minds, cranking up the dial as far as they can go, like he does on page... 370. I mean, it's all over the place, and I could read so many examples. I mean, I could read the whole book. I would love to read the whole book as, as an um, illustration of what he's doing right here, but here's one example. Any, se any battle season general will tell you that, even in a small-scale engagement as this one was, there always comes a point where coherence breaks down and narrative flow and any real sense of how things are going. These matters are recreated by historians later on. The need to recreate the myth of coherence may be one of the reasons why history exists in the first place. Never mind, we have reached that point, the one where the Battle of Aljul Siento took on a life of its own, and all I can do now is point here and there and hope you can bring your own order out of the general chaos. So, I mean, it's, it's a quick insert like this one is just not only fun, but also necessary in differentiating this gunfight from the previous ones we've encountered over the decades. It's great! And King provides snapshots of different characters in confusion, breaking each scene with and. 
the repetition creates fun and inventive structure that barrels along. Um, so for instance, Trampus looked up and was horrified to see the lead fire engine come roaring and swaying along the center of the mall, red lights flashing, two stainless steel robot firemen now clinging to the back. Pimley, Finley, and Jackley leaped aside. So did Tassa the houseboy. But Tammy Kelly lay face down on the grass in a spreading soup of blood. She had been flattened by the fire response team Bravo, which had not actually scrambled to fight a fire in over 800 years. Her complaining days were over. And stand clear, blared the fire engine. Behind it, two more engines swerved gaudily around either side of Warden's house. Once again, Tassa the houseboy barely leapt in time to save his skin. This is fire response team Bravo. Some sort of metallic node rose from the center of the engine, split open, and produced a steel whirligig that began to spray high-pressured steams of water in eight different directions. Make way for the fire response team Bravo. And... James Cagney, the Tahin who was standing with the Gasky in the foyer of the Feveral Hall dormitory when the trouble started, remember him, saw what was going to happen and began yelling at the guards who were staggering out of Damley's west wing, red-eyed and coughing, some with their pants on fire, a few, oh, praise God, and Bessa and all the gods with weapons. And, dear Christ, no, Pimley Prentice moaned. He clapped his hands over his eyes. And, Gasky grabbed the first gag and then Jackley and shouted at them to gather up the armed guards. And, north of the Algel-Sealgel compound, Sienna broke cover. Susanna broke cover, moving on a triple-run offense. This wasn't the plan, but the need to keep shooting, the need to keep knocking them down was stronger than ever. And, a breaker named Waverly tried to pull free of Finley. So I'm, I'm cutting out a lot of the chunks of the text itself. I just want to show you what that repetition does of the and. Um, just showing you these scenes, and then it's up to you to, to put it together. So it's great. The repetition is is just really fun, and I just like how it it just creates a structure that that barrels us along. But but here we go. Here we go, guys. On 382 to 383, and this is going to be tough. Eddie came out of the box office and embraced her. Hey, sugar man, hey, she murmured, fluttering kisses along the side of his neck in a way that made him shiver. Then Jake was there, pale from the killing, but composed, and she slung an arm around his shoulders and pulled him close. Her eyes happened on Roland, standing on the sidewalk behind the three he had drawn to Midworld. His gun dangled beside his left thigh, and he could feel the expression of longing on his face. Did he even know it was there? She doubted it and her heart went out to him. Come here, Gilead, she said. This is a group hug, and you're part of the group. For a moment, she didn't think he understood the invitation or was pretending not to understand. Then he came, pausing to reholster his gun and to pick up Oi. He moved in between Jake and Eddie. Oi jumped into Susanna's lap as though it were the most natural thing in the world. Then the gunslinger put one arm around Eddie's waist and the other around Jake's. Susanna reached up, the bumbler scrabbling comically for purchase on her suddenly tilting lap, put her arms around Roland's neck, and put a hearty smack on his sunburned forehead. Jake and Eddie laughed. Roland joined them, smiling as we do when we've been surprised by happiness. I'd have you see them like this. I'd have you see them very well. Will you? They are clustered around Susie's cruising trike embracing in the aftermath of their victory. 
I'd have you see them this way, not because they have won a great battle. They know better than that, every one of them. But because now they are Katet for the last time. The story of their fellowship ends here, on this make-believe street and beneath this artificial sun. The rest of the tale will be short and brutal compared to all that's gone before. Because when the Katet breaks, the end always comes quickly. Say sorry. It's a kind gesture on the part of King to immortalize this moment, the final moment of our Ka together. With so many gut-wrenching scenes to come and purposefully unsatisfying character arcs, this last beautiful moment is a gift. And though I didn't like the inclusion of the number 19, you have to give credit for King for staging Eddie's death in the 19th section of this chapter. Did a good job. Did a good job with that. So then he writes, He caught movement from the corner of his eye as he did so and saw another one, the boss of the show, had struggled up onto one elbow. His gun, the Peacemaker 40 that had, won, that had once executed a rapist, was leveled. Eddie's reflexes were quick, but there was no time to use them. The Peacemaker roared a single time, fire licking from the end of its barrel, and blood flew from Eddie Dean's brow. A lock of hair flipped on the back of his head as the slug exited. He slapped his hand to the hole that had appeared over his right eye, like a man who has remembered something of vital importance just a little too late. Roland whirled on the rundown heels of his boots, pulling his own gun in a dip too quick to see. Jake and Susanna also turned. Susanna saw her husband standing in the street with the heel of his hand pressed to his brow. Eddie? Sugar? Pimley was struggling to cock the peacemaker again. His upper lip curled back from his teeth in a dog-like snarl of effort. Roland shot him in the throat, and Algel Ciento's master snap-rolled to his left, the still uncocked pistol flying out of his hand and clattering to a stop besides the body of his friend, the weasel. It finished almost at Eddie's feet. Eddie! Susanna screamed and began a loping crawl towards him, thrusting herself on her hands. On her hands. He's not hurt bad, she told herself. Not hurt bad. Dear God, don't let my man be hurt bad. Then she saw the blood running from beneath his pressing hand, pattering down into the street, and knew it was bad. Suze? He asked. His voice was perfectly clear. Suze, where are you? I can't see. He took one step, a second, a third and then fell face down in the street, just as Grandpere Jaffords had known he would I, from the first moment he laid eyes on him. For the boy was a gunslinger, say true, and it was the only end that one such as he could expect. I'm going to speak about Eddie in more detail later on. In the meantime, I'm going to continue to give my commentary. But needless to say, that since being introduced to this character in 1987, no one would have expected that almost 20 years later that not only would he be the first to go, but that he would go out the way that he does. This is one of the biggest moments in the Dark Tower series. It's not one of the most fist-pumping, that's for sure. But if you were to assemble a top 10, which sounds like a pretty good Stephen King cast bonus episode, doesn't it? Pimley Prentice headshot to Eddie Dean has to be included. It's so sudden, so unexpected, and so un- fan-friendly. 
It is a jarring, mean moment that is so shocking, it causes the reader to immediately reject what they've just read. Chapter 12, The Tet Breaks. Though this deals with Eddie's death, it's delivered through the perspective of Jake who doesn't know how to handle his friend's upcoming demise. As he struggles with his emotions and the truth, King does wonders at making us hate the Breakers who are upset at the Gunslingers for freeing them, an act which had cost Eddie his life. Roland has a great moment with the Breakers when they block his way and demand to know what they'll do next now that he's ruined their easy life. His threat to them is terse, but the wrath is godlike. And when Eddie starts to slip, he awakens enough to warn Jake of Dandelo, who will appear in the end. His request, command, to protect Roland is a red herring tricking the reader into believing that Jake will be around long enough to protect him from the clownish psychic vampire. Eddie tells Susanna he'll wait for her, which is something that we will see come true. And then he has his final moment with the gunslinger on page 404. Never, never had Roland seen an eye so bright, not even on Jericho Hill, when Herbert had bade him a laughing goodbye. Eddie smiled. We had sometimes. Roland nodded again. You, you, but this Eddie couldn't finish. He raised one hand and made a work, weak twirling motion. I danced, Roland said, nodding. Danced the Kamala. Yes. Eddie mouthed, and then drew in another one of those whooping, painful breaths. It was the last. Thank you for my second chance, he said. Thank you, Father. That was all. Eddie's eyes still looked at him, and they were still aware but he had no breath to replace the one expended on that final word, that father. The lamplight gleamed on the hair of his bare arms, turning them to gold. The thunder murmured, and then Eddie's eyes closed, and he laid his head to one side. His work was finished. He had left the path, stepped into the clearing. They sat around him a circle, but Katet, no more. It's not Eddie's death that makes me feel that the quartet is done, but the conversation with Susanna who acknowledges it. And it can't be good that Jake and Roland are going off on their own mission leaving Susanna behind. If there's one time they should all be together, it's now. Jake receives his first kiss which is designed to be a callback to low men in yellow coats. Brodigan even mentions it as well as a fake-out. King tells us that he'll remember it for the rest of his life, a statement that fools the reader into thinking the life will be a long one, but it's not meant to be. It's one of those moments, guys, where it just shows King at his meanest. Part 3. In this haze of green and gold. Chapter 1. Mrs. Tassenbaum drives south. As Jake and Roland head to stop King from being hit by the van, Roland understands that one of them is going to die. 
King wasn't lying earlier when he said that when the tet breaks, the end comes quickly, and readers hold their breath during this scene waiting for Roland to meet his end and redeem the man who will now sacrifice himself rather than the boy. I should also note that they're being driven by a woman named Mrs. Tassenbaum who comes alive while behind the wheel, invoking the character of Mrs. Todd from the Skeleton Crew short story, Mrs. Todd's Shortcut. Chapter 2. Vez Kagan. The previous chapter ends with Roland attempting to leap and save King, but his bad hip has betrayed him. Without thinking, Jake does what Roland could not do and leaps from the van, blocking King from the brunt of the impact. It's very quick, so quick that you aren't really sure what happened. Only later, when your heart and mind stop racing, that you realize that Jake has once more died in the pages of a Dark Tower novel from a car crash. Guys, King is, you know, I said that King was mean at his meanest, but he's not even, he's just getting started. I mean, he's so cruel in this moment, suggesting for a split second, but a second in which he provides hope only to snatch it away, that Jake might be all right. But then Roland sees the, the concavity of Jake's chest and know that there's no hope. Unfortunately, Roland has to tend to Stephen King, which, God, which means that Jake passes from this story when Roland's back is turned. Ugh. Page 462. Smith started the van with a look of profound relief. Roland didn't bother watching him go. He went to Mrs. Tassenbaum and fell on his knees beside her. Oi sat by Jake's head, now silent, knowing his howls could no longer be heard by the one for whom he grieved. What the gunslinger feared most had come to pass. While he had been talking to two men he didn't like, the boy whom he loved more than all others, more than he'd loved anyone in his life, even Susan Delgado, had passed beyond him for the second time. Jake was dead. Oof. Jake's death is a stab in the heart. The fact that we aren't even given a goodbye between the father and son is a brutal and cruel twist of that knife. I mean, Eddie had only died 60 pages before. No one expected anyone to die, certainly not this soon, and especially not Jake. I mean, for Christ's sake, the kid already died not once, but twice, so surely King couldn't kill him a third time. And we were given the image of a dead Oi, so I think that we all thought that if anyone was going to die, it would be Oi, and the death of Oi would be a moment in the Boyd's life that would help him become a man. I don't think any of us expected Jake to die, leaving Oi behind. That's so much worse! And King lays it on thick, from Roland's cry to Oi's weeping. Mrs. Tannenbaum by the way, is married to the founder of North Central Positronics, which is known at the moment as Positronics. After Roland buries Jake, he and Mrs. Tassenbaum hit the road and head to New York. Chapter 3, New York Again, Roland Shows ID. Irene takes Roland to the location of the Tet Corporation, built around the rows where the vacant lot had once stood. While Irene sits in the park with the statue of the turtle, Roland mounts the steps and enters Keystone Earth's dark tower. And this is such an interesting portion of the book because it's so new. 
I'm going to try to pronounce this. I don't think I'm going to be able to, but Hammerskjold Plaza is a fun and inventive setting, and Roland's entrance into it couldn't have come at a better time. Still reeling from the death of Eddie and Jake, the building itself is proof that the characters had not died in vain. There's a lot of doubling back in this book, the Dixie Pig, Fettic, Maine, New York. If major beats weren't occurring, the death of Callahan, the death of Eddie, the death of Jake, the death of Flag, the birth of Mordred, the assault on Aljul Siento, the reveal of Ted, the return of Shimi, the near death of Stephen King, then it would be repetitive and boring. But with Hammerskjold Plaza, everything is new. It's a brand new aspect to the series, and like I had said about John Collum, it allows the option of a side of stories to be told about the worlds of the Dark Tower even if those stories don't include the Ka-Tet because the inclusion of the Tet Company is uncharted territory that can have its own adventures without stepping on Roland's ultimate quest. King allows that to be an option. When Roland spots a picture of the Founding Fathers, Moses Carver, Aaron Deepno, and John Collum, and thinks, these three men had come together, almost magically, to fight for the Rose in their old age. Their take, the gunslinger, their tale, the gunslinger believed, would make a book in itself, very likely a fine and exciting one. The Tets Corporation future is teased, with 30 years of work still to be done. The building itself is the twinner of Aljul Siento, both locations staffed with people working towards a greater cause. Everyone within physically affected by the energy of the place, both locations a mix between our world and all world, one located in end world, the other on earth. And at long last, Moses Carver enters the story, an impossibly old man and last remaining member of the Ka-Tet of the Rose. Roland has his only palaver with the Tet of the Rose, in which the goings-on of the corporation are teased, and King ropes us into this Tet, as there are employees on staff whose job it is to read the books by Stephen King and analyze them to look for clues about the Dark Tower. This is King's way of rewarding all of us who have done this, as I'm doing right now. If Stephen King is going to include himself into the story, he knows that he's going to include his constant reader as well, and it's such an awesome and fun uh, inclusion. Here, Roland is given a copy of Insomnia, and King retcons the inconsistencies within that book by stating that they are coded messages or misdirections. Um, and one of the characters has fun by referring to some elements of his own works as gibberish, in which the Calvins a.k.a. the constant readers, have to analyze. Roland is provided a watch that will help point him in the right direction of the tower, a watch immortalized with Michael Whelan's beautiful illustration inside the front cover of the hardcover, and Moses, Hard and Moses Carver returns Aunt Talitha's cross. Roland is then taken to the Dixie Pig weeks after the battle that resulted with Callahan's sacrifice, and King lets Roland say goodbye to the city that wound up playing such a large part in the story. It's also King's acknowledgement of New York, a city that he writes about both well and often, even if he's more famous for writing about small-town Maine. Roland ducks beneath the tape, and then just stood where he was for a moment, listening to the honk and pound of the city on this bright June day, relishing its adolescent vitality. He would never see another city of that much he was almost positive. And perhaps that was just as well. He had an idea that after New York, all others would be a step down. 
Roland enters the Dixie Pig, and returning to the setting that kicked off the novel is such a strange feeling. First of all, it feels like the siege on the Dixie Pig took place a thousand years ago. It certainly doesn't feel like it happened in this book at all. It's a great way to recreate the sensation of the taffy-like sense of time. Also, when you juxtapose the two scenes, the first is just full of so much energy and vibrance. As Roland and Oi walk through the empty restaurant here, everything about it feels so hollowed out. The energy's gone. And with Jake and Eddie dead, the life is steadily leaking out of this book like air from a balloon, purposefully. The beam has been saved. King has been saved. The two goals they were racing against time to achieve has been met. Now, it's just the death march to the Dark Tower. Chapter 4. Fetic. Two Views. Here we see the deserted village of Fedic again, for real this time. The times before had been through the imagination of Mia, but now it's real. King gives us Roland and Susanna's reunion. It's a bittersweet blend of emotion. With the joy of Oi seeing Susanna and vice versa, to Oi's lonesome howl to tell her about the passing of Jake, and the wonderfully menacing description of Roland, which shows that it doesn't matter how many people has entered his life. Now that he's on the final leg of his journey, he has been reverted to the fearsome Deathbringer we were first introduced to him as in the pages of the Gunslinger so long ago. She sits up, slapping puffs of dust out of her shirt, and a shadow falls over her. She looks up, but at first cannot see Roland's face. His head is directly in front of the sun, and it makes a fierce corona around him. His features are lost in blackness. But he's holding out his hands. Part of her doesn't want to take them. And do you not ken it? Part of her would end it here and send him into the Badlands alone. No matter what Eddie wanted. No matter what Jake undoubtedly wanted too. This dark shape with the sun blazing around its head had dragged her out of a mostly comfortable life. Oh yeah, she had her ghosts. At least one mean-hearted demon as well, but which of us don't? He has introduced her to first... He had introduced her first to love, then to pain, then to horror and loss. The deals run pretty much downhill, in other words. It is his balefully talented hand that has authored her sorrow, this dusty knight errant who has come walking out of the old world in his old boots with an old death engine on each hip. These are the melodramatic thoughts, purple images, and the old Odetta, patron of the hungry eye and all-around cool kitty, would no doubt had laughed at them. But she has changed. He has changed her, and she reckons that if anyone is entitled to melodramatic thoughts and purple images, it is Susanna, daughter of Dan. Part of her would turn him away, not to end his quest or break his spirit. Only death will do those things. But to take such light as remains out of his eyes and punish him for his relentless, unmeaning cruelty. But Ka is the wheel to which we all are bound, and when the wheel turns, we must perforce turn with it first with our heads up to heaven and then revolving hellward again where the brains inside them seem to burn. And so, instead of turning away, instead of turning away as part of her wanted to do, Susanna took Roland's hands. He pulled her up, not to her feet, for she had none, although for a while a pair had been given her on alone, but into his arms. And when he tried to kiss her cheek, she turned her face so that his lips lips pressed on hers. Let him understand it's no halfway thing, she thought, breathing her air into him and then taking his back, changed. 
Let him understand that if I'm in it, I'm in it to the end. God help me, I'm in it to the end. Susanna filled Roland in on the sad and pointless death of Shimi from infection from a wound on his foot, of the harrowing journey from the thunderclap that almost sent her train into a chasm beyond the walls of Thetic, and of the telepathic monsters that live within it that are burrowing into the catacombs beneath Castle Discordia. And with that, King leaves off um, this particular section in this haze of green and gold and begins to move into part four, the white lands of Empathica, Dandelo. But I am going to stop where we are because this episode is running pretty long, but fear not, I am going to immediately start recording another episode. I'll be publishing them at the same time so you can head on over there for my final thoughts, guys, on the Dark Tower of Book 7, the Dark Tower. So I'll see you on over there. Baby